started. Um, so this is far more like formal feeling setting wise than the whole meeting should be. So please do not feel like just because somebody's in front of you talking that this is as formal as it kind of feels in this moment. Um, but I wanted to start by welcoming you all to coming out and speaking about some of these issues. I appreciate you guys coming out in the rain because I know I was sitting there going, did I really, am I going out in the stream? <laughs> um, it's kind of chilly. Uh, but I really, really appreciate everybody that's in this room and all of the wealth of information that you guys are bringing to the table and also just willingness to discuss and network with each other in person because as somebody that is online a lot, it can be super easy to avoid human interaction. Um, so with that, we'll kind of go ahead and get started. Um, we have a couple of things. First of all, before we get too far, I want... <laughs> to make sure everybody got one of these and they have their colored note cards. Uh, so those are going to come relevant later in the piece. But I just want to make sure everybody knows what this is and what it's for because otherwise we are looking at me like, why is this blank afterward? So this is for you guys. It's obviously an agenda, but we also want to provide space with your, whatever notes you guys want to take. And on the back, you'll notice there's connections and then there's also follow-up. So if there's things that you guys want to remind yourself of, I know I like to write at the end of a piece of paper, we put that there. Or if there's connections of like people's names that you're like, oh, I really want to connect with that person later, jot down their name, jot down their organization. We really want you guys to be able to connect with each other beyond this event. Um, so that is what this page is for. Please use it, enjoy it. It is for you guys to take home. So with that, we have a, a nice little agenda here. Um, we're going to do some introductions, uh, and that's really though about you guys introducing yourself and also introducing um, you know, what you're bringing into the room, if there are other things. If it's just you as someone who's interested, that's amazing. If it's you as somebody who has a background or is with an organization, that, that's what you want to speak on now, um, that's amazing. So we'll go around the room a little bit. Um, my name is Jessie, shocker, from RVU Dirt. You might also know me as like the mermaid emoji formerly the little girl that does this, um, that everybody thought was just being sarcastic all the time. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so obviously RVA Dirt, um, that's the organization I'm with, and obviously I'm interested in the Coliseum Development Project. My name is Francesca Lee Davis. I'm the uh, last third of RVA Dirt, and that's my dirt kid back there. That's a little shot. Um, I said y'all. So thank you all here for coming as a community and bringing each of your own experiences. And I also want to definitely thank Melissa and Francesca for being um, held captive to all my ideas. Um, <laughs> <laughs> you'd think it was funny, but some days. So um, uh, just so you guys know, we, we do have some audio going. I didn't want to like have to awkwardly pass around a microphone. I don't know if this is going to actually work very well, but we want to make sure that we're or we can just step away from the speaker. I think it'll be all right. That's, that's fair. That's one of the feedback. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, let's try it just so we can hear you. Okay. Like, I have to be out here, yeah. like work this entire room. Yep. Yes. <laughs> With the people. In the room. That's why you're <laughs> Thank you guys all for coming here. So part of this is also sharing resources and knowledge. So I don't portray myself to be an expert on any of these things. There are people who are far more knowledgeable than me on probably every single thing here. But what I, what, I will, what we want to do is make it a little relatable and understandable and kind of translate a little bit because if nothing else you guys noticed, 
there is a wide variety of backgrounds in this room. Um, with a project this big, it's going to bring out a lot of different people. So we want to make sure that everybody's kind of on the same page as we talk about this. So where I am coming in is actually to do a quick and dirty of uh, the Navy Hill project and how we really got here. So the first place that we're going to talk about is Navy Hill neighborhood. Um, this is actually, I, I joked on Twitter earlier, I never use note cards, but I want to make sure uh, for this piece of it that um, I get some of the numbers and dates right for you guys, because it's something that I feel like is very important. Um, and that is uh, the Navy Hill neighborhood. So the reason we're even talking about the words Navy Hill, because I think you guys have heard it called everything from Coliseum Development Project to the Knob and all these different things. So Navy Hill is, is what the development group is calling themselves. And it also is what the proposal they've submitted is called. So Navy Hill, though, itself has been a neighborhood. It was a traditionally black neighborhood in downtown Richmond. Um, when we speak on this being a development project, this is really a, a redevelopment project of this area. Um, and so that's what we really wanted to kind of go through here. And the first phase of it was around the interstate that was cut through the interchange of 64 and 95. And when we talk about that, I'll probably speak a little bit about Jackson Ward as a larger whole of this, and then Navy Hill specifically. So to give you guys an idea, um, Navy Hill, on the right-hand side, that's actually the marker that explains, it's like the historic marker for Navy Hill. Um, but to ex talk about that a little bit, originally the Richmond Educational Association was hosting school for black children with black teachers. And that's originally what started with Navy Hill School that we hear about on this plaque, is it started there. So this was before Richmond Public Schools um, was around and founded. Richmond Public Schools was founded in 1869. And so as part of that, when you have an official public school system, of course, this became part of the official city's public school system. And over the years, the building got dilapidated. They ended up moving. A new school was built in 1893. Um, and eventually, where are these buildings? They're gone, right? They're not here today? So the old original, original building, so not the one that was rebuilt in 1893, the original buildings were actually taken down uh, in part of the 1950s as part of to clear space for the interstate. And if anybody uh, has looked much into the interstate thing, I say thing, <laughs> the whole thing, everything is. But that was actually put to referendum uh, to Richmond City, and it was voted down twice. So what happened? We obviously have an interstate, right? Uh, so it, it, the city council determined that they would give the authority to the General Assembly for that land to be able to create uh, an authority that they control to put the interstate in. So this really goes back to that being the first phase of development of this area is taking what ended up being a lot of residences, a lot of homes, um, uh, people that were old school buildings, things that are historic parts of Richmond, and it was taken down in the name of quote unquote progress. So that's where we really want to start on this when we talk about Navy Hill. Um, to give you guys a little bit of an idea, when we talk about Jackson Ward as a larger entity, through the Coliseum, um, there was actually a Richmond Times Dispatch articles where you can read that this has been chronicled, what happened. Um, they're very open about what happened in the Richmond Times Dispatch articles. So in the 1950s, there were 4,700 units of housing for black residents in the Jackson Ward area. 
after the Colosseum to get, do you guys percentage, how much do you think was left? 20%. Close. 25%. So the homes that were rebuilt to create space once they tore down what was called slum clearance, um, less than 25%. It went from 4,700 homes for black residents down to 1,000 homes for black residents. So I think that's something that's very important when we talk about the phrasing of Richmond Times Dispatch and how the, the time period was. Um, uh, it was portrayed in other articles as some residents may have to experience an inconvenience for progress and growth. So I think it's important to really acknowledge the history of this because history does repeat itself. So I mentioned that it's not just the Coliseum, um, not, sorry, not just the interstate, there was a second part of this redevelopment, and that's where the original Coliseum comes into it. So that's really in the 1960 time frame. So this is actually something I think Ben Teresa founded, and uh, there, I saw it on Twitter this morning, so I might have added it this morning. Uh, you can't really read it up here, but we'll post this later. So this is uh, from RRHA documents that describe the area of Navy Hill specifically, so transitioning a little bit from Jackson Ward and what happened in Jackson Ward to really talking Navy Hill and the Coliseum redevelopment in the 60s. So there were 527 families in the Navy Hill area. There was a school, Navy Hill School, as I mentioned. So to give you an idea, in the late 1890s, there was almost 1,000 students at the school. In the 1940s, it was about 660. When we get to the 1960s, it's about 50%, so around 300 or so. So the amount of people that were moved out of this area in the name of progress, it, it took time, but it's happened, and it's something that with this name especially, I feel like we need to speak on because when you go and read some of how they describe this area, and you go back and read some of the old ways that they describe slum clearance, it, this actually, I've ever done some words from this, it's overcrowding, small lots, high density, um, a quote, blighting influence on the surrounding areas. So when we talk today, and I put it up here for people that have been to some of the um, other presentations about the district, the term being used now for this area is wasteland. So I think it's important as we as a community talk about this to say these things because it's not just this part of Richmond and this is not just this economic development project. It's a larger part of Richmond and this is one project. There's gonna be another project tomorrow. Maybe not on this size, maybe it's a lot smaller, but I think we need to get into the habit of, of understanding what the history is and honoring that and um, incorporating that into the development plans and that's really where the voice of the community can come in especially because these are the things that we need to make sure we're talking about and, and recognizing that we're not repeating history for a third time and how to make this a place for everybody, truly. So that was just a quick little background. I want to give you guys kind of the, the high-level overview of who some of the players are. Uh, this is like not an official hierarchy chart and not get this from somebody. It was just, it's just a visual to understand the different pieces of it. So the city, and when we talk about the city and where the project is, it originated with the mayor uh, and city administration that negotiate this project. They actually have a firm um, that's called Davenport and Company. So Davenport and Company is their consultant. They actually have hired out and contracted Hunted Strategic Partners, which has created an analysis of the project. So that's kind of the city vein of things, where the mayor and city, council, city administration, not city council, um, has been working on this project. Then you have uh, NH District Corp who submitted this proposal. They have a nonprofit component, that's the NH Foundation. The Capital City Developers is the name of the developer for this. And then they also have, of course, their own legal representation uh, that negotiates with the city. They also have their own comms uh, team. Hi, Jeff. 
uh, that is helping communicate what their project is and what their proposal is to the community. And then as far as people go, uh, community activists, that's everybody of course in this space and beyond this space that are involved in the conversation. And that's some of what we're here for tonight is for you to figure out, you know, where do you fit in the conversation? What really strikes what you're passionate about? And then city council. So city council has not seen the proposal. Uh, they just passed a commission to study the proposal. So that's why I kind of put them with the people because they're also the people that we as individuals hold accountable as elected officials, right? So a uh, high level overview, uh, this is, we call it the North of Broad request for proposal. So this is actually what the city put out and asked for, is the North of Broad request for proposal. So it started in 2017, is when it actually got put out in November of 2017, and the deadline was February of 2018. Does anybody know how many applications or how many proposals there were? One, right. And that's where we get into the Navy Hill conversation of things. So something I do want to acknowledge, because obviously this is the timeline that is from the city's uh, request for proposal process, and is that in the summer of 2017, NH District Corp was formed. So this is the request for proposal uh, that the city puts out, but this is something that they were, ultimately there are developers and there's an organization that was looking to do a similar type of project. Um, this is, they ultimately had a proposal to respond to. So what is that proposal? So this is a map that I did a screenshot of. So the original request for proposal actually specifies that nice little neat area around the Coliseum. It's not super big, but it does note in there that it could they're open to beyond that little area. So that's where it started. There's also this stupid long list of what they call development objectives. So that is what the city is saying. Whatever proposal comes forward, these are the things that we want to see in it. So you'll notice some of those actually are, of course, the arena. You have the Convention Center Hotel, the Blues Armory, um, and there's other things in there, though. Poverty mitigation, jobs trainings. I think a lot of things that community members, myself included, have been like, but where is this part of this, right? How does this work? So that's just a quick little look at what this proposal is. So this is the response so now we have the request for proposal out around february navy hill has decided to respond to this um so does anybody know what the proposal is <laughs> <laughs> so this is where we're standing right now and that's what i want to kind of get across is that we don't have a proposal yet so the proposal is still in negotiation between navy hill district corp and the city's administration so we haven't seen it the, the city councilors haven't seen it. It's still under negotiation. I've been at meetings where they've mentioned things that are um, still being decided, such as like performance pieces, things that I would love to know about. I think a lot of us would, like what's the teeth to the conversation and power of this thing. Um, so that's the important thing to note is that we don't have the actual documents of what the proposal is. What we do have is we know on the left-hand side for everybody, that is the 10 project blocks. So this is the response to say, hey, what we would like to develop is within these 10 project blocks and we have ideas of how we want to develop that. On the right hand side, you have what's called a TIF, and that's not like an image file. It's tax increment financing and it is the funding mechanism by which they want to pay for the public pieces of this project. So this TIF district, I believe it's like 80 blocks. It, downtown, we do have a lot of real estate that we don't get tax revenue off of. So that's some of it. 
Um, but that is what we know as far as the scope of the project. In addition, we know that there is a private investment. This is, again, like, I put this intentionally of like super dense stuff up here so that you guys can like reference it, take pictures for later. Um, but I'm just gonna give plain language of what it is. So the private investment is around the housing, so specifically like apartment units that are gonna be put up. All of the apartment developments are mixed use developments. So that means that there's going to be like retail and restaurant space down, downstairs, I guess I'd call it, but on the first level. Um, and then there's like the wrapped around parking in a lot of the cases. There's also some office space that's involved. So this is where the private investment is going. And then also a, a full service hotel for the convention center um, that's gonna be in this space. I did reference Doorways Hospitality House because I, I saw it. I haven't heard much about it, but I wanted to at least put it up there because that was the piece that was in this project. Um, I'm curious to find out more about that also. As far as the public investment, so the public investment is like what our tax dollars would ultimately be paying for. So what we would own as a city and the people in the city would start with the arena, a renovation of the Blues Armory, AKA former Sixth Street Marketplace, if anybody wants to like think about different names of things. Um, and what they're looking at would be having a ballroom for meeting space for the convention hotel, because it would be attached to that. Um, having a food market, a music venue space um, on the different floors of it. And then I know a couple of different um, street improvement projects. So those would be things such as raising Lee Street, where now you have a lot more of a walkable space downtown to where it's connecting. If you think about what the interstate destroyed, some of the public improvements are going to be reestablishing that connectivity to the downtown area. So there's also some additional components. These are outside of the official proposal that Navy Hill presented, but they've been talked about, so I want to mention them. It's 400 affordable housing units that are funded either by the surplus or from nonprofits. But when we talk about like what the Navy Hill proposal is, those are actually separate, um, but they're part of what the, the mayor and everybody is negotiating right now. So the private investment piece, that is private dollars that are going to spend $1.1 billion over a period of time to build all of that stuff, right? And the idea behind it is that the tax revenue generated from things such as the meals tax, that obviously if we're having new restaurants, we'll go down there. You have more people there during the daytime and the nighttime, so they might spend more money. And those tax revenues would then go to pay off the public portion of the project. So once the development gets built, then that would in theory be able to generate tax revenue to pay off the debt of the public portion. So that's when we talk about it's not tax dollars from today, unless you talk about like the Dominion Tower that we know is going to come online in the near future. Um, that is, is all based on revenue generated from the project when we talk about the theory behind it. Now, I know I just told you guys that no one knows what the proposal is. That's like a lot of detail, right? So here's the thing. <laughs> it's actually from the Hunden Strategic Partners Analysis. So this is where we're having to get a lot of information is that we have the analysis to read through. We also have people that are presenting the project, the mayor's presenting the project, you have the comms team presenting the project, but we don't have the project ourselves. So that's just a quick little reminder. So what this means is, I like visuals obviously, because I'm that person. Um, on the left-hand side is what I mentioned about the request for proposal. Those are all the things the city wants, right? On the far right-hand side are all the things that NH District Corp has presented to the city to say this is what we're willing to do. Now, in the middle is the proposal we haven't seen. So if we had the proposal, we might know a little bit more 
about things such as who's going to own the land? Is it going to be leased or owned by the city? We might have more ideas about the accountability, recourse options, um, the different implementations. So we talk about jobs training. How is it going to happen? Those are all things that might be expected to be in a proposal. It's just we don't have that information at this point. So it's a little bit difficult, but I think it creates a space to also articulate what we would want to see out of it and think now about what we want to see out of any economic development project that gets presented to us. So this is a quick little, like, where do we all stand today? The city, still in negotiations with NH District Court. That said, the mayor is out presenting the project to people, and each district corp is out presenting the project to people as far as like the concepts and ideas of it. They're starting to talk about it. We talk about the people. Obviously, community activists, a lot of people have been talking about it. City council is trying to talk about it with the commission and ultimately putting that place in place. So we're talking is where everybody's kind of at unanimously here. So that's the high-level overview to at least get everybody that some of you guys might have more knowledge on it, less knowledge, but at least wanted to give everybody a working knowledge of the concept as we dig into some more of the topics. So with that, I'm actually going to bring up our facilitator, because now I've talked a whole lot and I need water, and I want to hear from you guys more so. So tonight we have facilitating Chelsea Higgs-Wise. Uh, she's a clinical facilitator who is trained in social work. Uh, she is part of a couple of city-appointed boards, RBHA uh, and the Human Rights Commission, and she's a community organizer. And P.S., these are originally her shoes. <laughs> First of all, thank you guys for coming. Uh, this shows that you are involved, it shows that you are paying attention, and it also shows the administration and council that more people are willing to engage in this conversation. So thank you guys so much for being here. Uh, when I start out facilitations, no matter what the topic is, I really want to pay honor to the space that we are in. All of my talks, all of my facilitations, things that I do always talk about uh, space, place, and time. And so I really want to just kind of first give honor to this place that we are standing in. Uh, this land, this native land, actually belongs to the Powhatan Confederacy. Um, and this, this land and this portion obviously has had many transformations since the day that we are here. So just understanding that many people have come before us in this space and they have their own stories is part of the economic development of this because we make decisions, including economic decisions, with our emotions. We make a lot of decisions, but including big decisions with our emotions. So understanding a historic context is always important when we're having these conversations. To understand the space, that we're sharing right now, who is in the room, and who's not in the room. So if you feel like you have something you want to say, please do that in this space. It is welcoming, even though I am a person with the mic. I'm only doing that because, again, we want it recorded. Um, and then also just understanding what time we are in as a city, as a nation. It's really... Thank you. A good spot, there you go. Uh, to understand what time we're in as a city, as a nation, and what this means that right now this decision has different consequences because of the time. I say all that to open up that every question and comment does not necessarily have to have a direct connection to an economic development. And it shouldn't have to. We should be able to talk about some of the things that may lead to these decisions as also to hear reactions and feedback that are just genuinely authentic. So I say that, that big disclaimer to say that I am a social worker, I'm super lovey and touchy, but I do want this to, to be a real conversation. 
Um, so before we kind of get started opening that piece up to your reactions to the quick and dirty that Jesse of RVA Dirt gave, I do want to invite one other person that we have in the room that I think can provide uh, some really good information context-wise about how this project is being funded and getting paid for. And that is Dr. Ben Teresa. Where? That areas, and we what we're going to do. Um, this man right here has a lot of information on the TIF, and he has a great PowerPoint that he's been sharing with communities um, across the city, including some administration or council folks. From what I'm hearing, or people that are very interested in this, we've asked him to share one slide and just talk a little bit about the important stuff that we think uh, you all can take back, as well as ask more questions about once we do the quick introduction. Okay. Here's Ben. Where's the sweet spot? Right here. Yep. <laughs> all right. Um, yeah, thank you. Thank you all. It's good to be with you here. So I want to kind of break down the mechanics of how TIF works, tax increment financing. Um, and so that we all can kind of have a basic working knowledge of what TIF is. And that can be really empowering when we're in these conversations about what the development should look like and how it's financed. And once you know how it's financed, then you know what are the important questions to ask uh, when, we, when we do have the full proposal. And what are the important questions that council should be asking as well. Okay, so as we all are probably understand pretty well that one of the main ways that cities have to raise revenue for anything that they want to do, whether it's schools or economic development, is through taxing property. And TIF, the basic idea of TIF is that it harnesses the value created, property value created from development in the future, harnesses that future growth in property value to pay for development now. So how does that work? Well, if you think about property value in a particular space, you know, if it's easy to think about downtown Richmond, you can think of that, think of the boundaries that Jesse presented on that TIF district. Over time, um, property value can be expected, um, not, not thinking about the new Coliseum or the new development, but just over time, what happens year to year in the downtown, the property value, it um, over time will probably increase at some average normal rate, even if it's just inflation, but probably things will continue to grow downtown, and so we can expect in any given area in the downtown that the property value will increase at some sort of like base natural rate over time. And of course, that value is then taxed, uh, and council obviously sets the tax rate, and those revenues go to the general fund to pay for our schools and roads and all the rest of it. Okay, so what is a TIF, how does a TIF work? Well, the first thing in, within that TIF district is what we're talking about, is that at day one, what the TIF does is it sort of freezes the property value that can be taxed for the general fund at that day one property value. So if all the property in downtown in, or in that TIF district is, you know, for the sake of argument, a million dollars, um, that million dollars is all that can be taxed, that is all the value that can be taxed for the general revenue. Or, you know, the base, sort of the base property tax, property revenue, property value. Um, so now imagine the new development. And this is the purpose of the TIF, is to harness 
the property value growth from that new development. The housing, the office, the infrastructure improvements, and of course, in this case, the new Coliseum. And so all of that will increase in the TIF district, the property values over a certain number of years or a certain time. And so when we talk about the increment, this is what the increment is in tax increment, tax increment financing, is that it's the difference between that base value and the property value growth that results from the new development. So this is the, the increment, is the difference between what you froze at day one, uh, property value that exists now, and the property value that increases uh, because of new development. But also it has a component, right? There's really two components to that increment, which is sort of what would have happened anyway, and then what would happen really because of new, new development. And so this is, this is what's important, or this is the mechanism. And so how, in this case, how the proposal, um, from what we understand from the proposal is, okay, so how do you actually fund this? You know, right, these are revenues that will be generated as the project is built. And so it's actually, um, bonds will be sold, so investors will essentially lend money to the city um, or, or you know, developers to begin construction on different components of the, um, you know, Jesse listed out what they'll exactly pay for, of the project. And so it's the bonds that will be repaid as the project generates new property value growth, new incremental uh, property value and hence incremental taxes that will repay those bonds that give the cash upfront to develop the project. Um, and so what's repaying those bonds are, are what's generated sort of by the project, the incremental revenues from the project. So that's where I'll leave that. Do we want to have questions now or how do you want to? Yeah, do you guys want to go ahead and ask your questions now um, of Ben? Let's go ahead and start. Yeah. So, um, so how is the city like, like portioning? So like the base property value tax, where's that going and how, and, and, and how is that different from the incremental property value tax? And then by the second part. How is it different in like flows of funds where it goes or? Yeah, is that, is that why they're, is that why it's, like why is it not just one? Right, so the reason why you designated TIF district is so that what happens with all of the revenue so you tax this base value, which is day one property value, and that goes to the general fund and city council appropriates that as they see fit, just as normal. This, the difference between that and what's generated in new value after day one goes to a TIF fund, and there's a specific formula for how this project will spend that money. Like 50% to schools or something? Yeah, so the way it's been described, um, is first it goes to repay those bonds so there's a certain debt service right just like a monthly mortgage payment or car payment or whatever um, that will be repaid second it goes to a reserve fund to um, sort of ensure against you know the project doesn't quite meet its um, its its uh, revenue projections and then third it has a 50 50 split between 50 percent so this is sometimes what's been called the surplus 
50% goes back to the city to be decided, appropriated again by council. Uh, I think the mayor has already proposed what to do with that surplus. And 50% then goes back to pay debt down faster. Um, so that, and, and those things happen in sequence, so they don't all happen at once, right? Those flows, of, those are the incremental funds, what they're used for is first, pay the debt, second to reserve, and third, a 50-50 split between the city and paying down the debt faster. Go ahead, Director. Can you give us some examples of other places that use TIFs and what they use them for? Right, so... Can you repeat the question? Okay, the question was, can you give examples of other places that have used TIF and what they've used them for? Um, TIF, so state, in every state, um, uh, TIF, how, what TIF, the rules for using TIF are set by the state. And so it varies state by state. Virginia um, doesn't use, there haven't been that many um, TIF projects, but there have been a few. So um, in Virginia, not exclusively, but short pump was built in part by using a TIF. Um, TIF, in that case, funded public infrastructure. So, uh, you know, probably a lot of us know or remember that there was like nothing where short pump was, and so like the roads had to be built and the sewers and everything. And so TIF actually paid for, you know, all of that stuff they built generates future tax revenue, and that was able to fund all of this infrastructure for it. Um, in other in other cases, and so you know, there's other people in the room that might be familiar with other TIF projects. Um, Virginia Beach Town Center was also built um, with a TIF, and other states have used them in a lot of different ways. Um, so there's really a wide range of different kinds of projects. Yeah, I, I don't know a lot about how bonds work, and. Um, Particularly in this case, I'm curious about how the payments work. I don't even know if you have that information, but it's all I keep hearing it compared to a mortgage. And so when you get when you take out a mortgage, you have to start making your payment right away. But this graph makes it look like the income from the incremental district doesn't start to build until later on. And so the question is, what does the city do about making the bond payments at the beginning of the project? Does that come out of general revenue? Right. That's a, I think that's a really important question. So the, so the question is basically, the bond is a, lo is a loan, a kind of loan, effectively. And so what's going to repay that loan is the increment generated by the project. So as the new uh, development is built, we have new revenues from that property. Um, but that doesn't happen immediately, right? Like that project, there's a timeline for the project. It, in the first couple of years, you know, be spent demolishing things, not necessarily building things, then you have to reassess the property and so forth. And so, correct, um, for the first few years, there may not actually be that much increment generated. So we're talking right about kind of early on here in the first couple of years, could be longer of the project. Um, so how will the bonds be repaid? Will you have to dip into general revenue? So um, I pose that, I think this is a very important question that everyone should be asking, and the council should be asking, and by the way, like the flows of these funds should be outlined year by year in, in, in the proposal, and or if not, in any kind of you know, council approved a commission, then that should definitely be within the purview of commission to outline exactly these flows of funds, uh, particularly in the early years. Okay, so, um, 
I just want to say that, that the way that this was answered to me, though, is that um, basically in the first years that the bond proceeds are actually used to repay the bond holders at first, and interest is capitalized, which is not unusual for financing. I mean, it sounds ridiculous to normal people that like you could never do that with your mortgage. But, but finance at this well, at, you know, this situation works differently. As far as uh, the developers draw, where does it happen in, in, in the stages within the tip? Um, so the question is, where does the developer draw? Um, so you know, most developers, the way that they make money is actually, um, as I'm sure many are familiar in the room, is they have a developer fee um, as, as sort of like a percentage of the total project cost. So. The, um, the developer is, and that's a good question, and I don't know how to answer that for this project, like when at what point they'd be paid, um, and that often varies by project. So, and some developers aren't paid until the project is actually sold, and we don't know, you know what the developer is planning in terms of, are they building and holding, are they building and selling, and so how the developer collects it, its fees not known. Okay, also, how can we actually find out who, uh, who's helping with the private side of the investment? So that would be not the, so the investors, not the bond investors, but who's investing equity? Right. Yeah. Um, I don't know. In projects like this, we often don't know. Uh, I think in any kind of project where there is public money and public land at stake, there should be pushes for full disclosure of those kinds of investors. That would seem reasonable. Um, so I think that's some, another important question. Yeah, I, I, I just want to go back a minute and remind people that we're, we're talking about a proposal that does not exist. And I think that's important for people to understand because right now there is, you know, the rule of thumb is that it has to go before council in the form of a paper to actually be real. And so in some ways we're being manipulated to have a conversation about something that simply isn't there. Um, I also think when it comes to this financing, we're being told that the only way we can do economic development projects in this city is through this type of financing, which is also not true because the city by state law can borrow up to a $2 billion and this city has a self-imposed debt limit of about $600 million, meaning that is what we've borrowed up into this point. And so the council could, could, could vote to raise the amount of money the city wants to borrow at any time if it chose to. And so I just want to remind people that in, there is a conversation right now about something that simply doesn't exist, being financed in a way that could be financed, that any economic development project we decided to do could be financed differently than the way it's being proposed. 
I, I would just add, um, thank you for your comment. I would also just add that it was the, the request for proposals that stipulated that the city not have to um, be, be on the hook, so to speak, to, to finance that. So, so that were the, those were the parameters of the RFP. And I, but I think the question and, and sort of the question of why, if we wanted to do economic development, why are we doing it through alternate mechanisms is really appropriate. So what, what's the downside risk to this? Like, how does, how does this backfire? Like, what's the potential for backfiring? And, and are there examples of, like, communities that use the TIF to do something, and then now they're up the creek with the huge, like, loan? Right. And, and so what are the potentials? Like, what could go wrong? Uh, yeah, why, um, why a TIF? Like, what else? Why a TIF? And, right. And well, why, why a TIF has to do with this idea that a TIF can theoretically um, finance new development by the new development itself. So the new the value that this new development will eventually put onto the tax rolls can be used now to fund the development. And so you don't have to go to use your bond authority or um, you know raise taxes or anything like that. And that's that that's the sort of rationale as stated. That's not my rationale, that's the a rationale. Um, so what could happen? Well, one of the things about the way that the TIF um, is organized here is that there is no um, what's called legal or moral obligation for the city to repay the bonds if the incremental taxes are insufficient. So if this project doesn't produce the revenues needed to pay back the bonds, then the city, the the bondholders, the investors, cannot sue the city for that money, cannot compel them legally to pay it through taxes or general fund revenues, and they don't have the moral obligation, which just means like later on down the road, like bondholders may look more poorly on the city if they didn't live up to that moral obligation to pay off the debt. So neither of those things apply here. However, I think we have to think you always want to think carefully about what are the risks beyond these like explicit sort of legal and quasi-legal things that the city would be on the hook for. I mean, what would happen if, and, and you, know, it, it, you know, anything could happen. I think we kind of underestimate how volatile um, the world is. And so, you know, it's like, well, in the next five years, next 20 years, we don't know what could happen. And so anything could happen, my point is, and so, okay, what would really be the scenario under which the, the incremental values don't repay the bond, and what are we left with in terms of a half-built project? And, how does that actually represent um, risk to the city? And so we were talking about this earlier today. Um, you know, would that TIF then dissolve, um, or would the TIF have to stay on and repay the bonds, even if it was at a lower uh, rate? And, and those are all questions that can be answered and written into an agreement. And so there's other forms of risk. Can you give some examples of maybe? struggles in other cities just so people can write them right. down and maybe look them up. Right, so um, I mean, I always throw out the case of Chicago, which is sort of like um, kind of a you know, exemplar in uh, bad use of TIF, but also implemented some very good reforms. So Chicago, kind of at their peak of TIF use, had one third of the city's property value inside a TIF, and, you know, hundreds of TIFs. Um, and so that, and, and so the, the structure was different. So there was a lot of money, property tax revenue, kind of being held off and away from the general funds. 
this project, um, because the flow of incremental values will be sort of immediately put to use, and if there's any that comes out, will be returned to the city and sort of actively as the project goes on, there's kind of a less of a risk of that. But you already understand that the instrument is complex, and we don't actually, can't all see the risks out ahead. And so that's already kind of the danger and what happened in places in Chicago is you lose transparency. And when you lose transparency, you really lose the ability to participate democratically in a decision about how are these funds being used? What is the risk to the city? You know, a lot of these things are unknowable. Um, and, and so, uh, yeah. Why so many blocks? I mean, when you look at the map, it's like right. they're trying to do this 10 block thing, but then it's like 30 blocks for the tip. So the answer to that is that that is what investors require. They require that large of an area of property value to invest in. So they're not just investing in that the Coliseum will generate bring Beyonce. That's not actually what investors are investing in. They're investing in that this TIF district will generate this amount of property value growth. So you need to draw it as big as they require the collateral. That's their collateral, right? So so, so beyond that area, so what they're trying to do is, so what, what, what will eventually happen is like they're trying to attract more people to come in and you know, buy a property outside of that 10 lot raise, that's what we're talking about? Like, like so, making it attractive to redevelop not just that 10 blocks, but just the entire area. So you speak to like Jordan and Jackson Ward, like does that make, I mean Jackson Ward's already gentrified, but like does that make it even more? Like, right, so I think Jaron, I think you're asking a, kind of a, a little bit about like what would be the effects or intended effects even outside of the TIF district in terms of investment and property value. And so this has actually been studied, and you know it's like, okay, what are the spillover effects of a TIF designating a TIF district? And the research shows that in a mixed-use TIF district like this one, you know, with office and commercial and residential, the downtown area has all of that, that the immediate surrounding areas also increase in property value. So that would mean Jackson Ward and other areas around downtown. Uh, Gilbert Court, you know, uh, you know, few, maybe the property, you know, the, the potential Gilpin, value of redeveloping it might. Gilbert Court is Jackson Ward, okay? Yeah. Let's, yeah. So what I'm saying is like, you know, and when I say it's like. Gilbert you know, Court is Jackson Ward. Right, when they, when they talk about like the increase, like, you know, uh, of, the, of the viability of this area, right. does that all, does that put public housing residents in, in Gilbert Court at risk for like, Oh, y'all out now because this area is hot. We're trying to get, you know. So I mean, I would, I would. That I don't, I don't know. I think like that could, could be a potential scenario. You know, that that land is under housing authority control. So it's not. It's different than having, you know, just like private land go up in property value that could be immediately redeveloped. But I will say that in Chicago, that's exactly what happened. Is that public housing projects? Yeah. did become very valuable land, and so public housing was destroyed to make way for private development. And, and, and we believe that when you, that there's going to be a clear pressure put on Gilpin Court, particularly when you take in consideration that the Housing Authority has recently announced their intention to sell public housing land 
And then when you look at the Attorney General's crime reduction grant for a million dollars that targets Gilpin Court, we see a clear and present danger to uh, destruction and gentrification as Gilpin Court. Um, and we also see the same impact ha occurring on Mosby Court as well. Mm -hmm. yeah, my question is similar to that. Um, so property value growth with new development, how does that actually benefit? Is there any way to, how does that benefit the actual community? I mean, because what I will say is I moved here from California and the rental prices here are outrageous. I mean, I live in California. <laughs> and, the, and then they you know, they pay people, they want to pay people. I don't know how people are surviving. So tell me, like, what I'm curious about if we're putting all this money in the community, how's it actually benefiting the community? Or is this just benefiting the developers? Does that, mean, does that question make sense? That's like, yeah. So, so I, I think her question is really, how does this benefit the community and not just the developers? And, um, and is there, I'm sorry, is there also any way to, to, to forecast how this will affect hospital prices and home party prices and is it going to push the people that are currently in the community out? Right. Yeah. So this is definitely an opinion that I have on this is um, I think that right now part of it is that in the request for proposal there are things that our mayor has said that they want in Richmond and in other developments that might be something that actually comes from the community through like a community benefits agreement at the beginning of a development um, and the way that things have transpired is that now we're sitting on the back end and some of those questions about what does this look like and what is the impact and what are the benefits are currently hidden because they're trapped up in a proposal that's still under negotiation and hasn't been publicly presented. And so I think that that's where some of this is educating ourselves because this isn't just this project, it's also about the next project and the ones after it to say how do we as a community get our voices in the front door because now I feel like we're trying to retrofit and speak out now and say that these are the concerns because when it's walkable to go between downtown and jobs, it's a natural thing to see, look at Gilpin and see that there is large pieces of land. Um, there's, I've oddly looked at a number of houses around that area and there are a lot of vacant commercial shells that are owned by private people that aren't related to this. So while I don't think necessarily that this is this corporation setting up intentionally those next pieces of the dominoes, it's something that we should be learning from and finding ways to now speak on how do we get the protections in place that that doesn't happen. And to Art's point about how we don't have a proposal, some of that may be in the proposal, but I think no matter what, when we're individually evaluating a project, we need to know what is it that we need to see to be comfortable with something like this happening. Because these are exactly the kinds of questions I think that are gonna come up from it. I'm gonna just toss out what happened in Blackwell. Yep. Hold on, Jerome. We want to make sure we get this one. I'm coming. Right. Yeah. I'm a native Richmonder, so I, you know, I bear witness to the, to the raising of Blackwell. And you know, when you tore down Blackwell, it made Manchester possible, right? And at the same time, um, you know, live now Blackwell is heavily gentrified and, and it's escalating in terms of you know the gentrification in that area so it's um, you know the, the the precedent of raising and tearing down public housing in the city of Richmond to make way for you know 
everybody else and displacement of the poor is not unrealistic. It's like, it just happened. It's history. Yeah, it's like 15 years ago, you know, we're, we're living with that now and, and even with the historic districts. Right, John? Uh, this is a very interesting conversation. And Art, you may recall that anywhere from six to 10 years ago, the bullseye was in fact on Gilpin Court. Yeah. It was called the Gilpin Court Revitalization Project. Uh, so this is your, your concern. It should be the concern of everybody in this room. And there's no question that this development in the Navy Hill area is going to impact property way beyond uh, that tip down. Right. Definitely. So, oh, I, I, I just wanted to say, I think, I, keep in mind, this is the conversation that the mayor and the corporate community want us to have. This is not the conversation that the social justice community is having around economic development, inclusion, and equity. Right, and there are many social justice conversations happening. Right. I don't want to say that social justice conversations are monolith, right? There are many happening. So I want to go to, not to cut you off, because I think the next part of this meeting is more of the feedback that we want to make sure we get and understand what at least the people in this room want to say. So everyone got some of the index cards, um, and you got an orange one, a yellow one, and a pink one. I want you to just write the, these topics on the four cards so that you know what colors coordinate with what for me. On the orange card, we're gonna talk about social and community context. So that's the historical Blackwell piece. That's the Gilpin piece. So social and community context on your orange card. On your yellow card, go ahead and write financing. These cards are, because we have less than an hour left in this space, these cards are going to be for you to either ask questions or leave comments in these particular areas. The green card is housing. Green is housing. And your pink one is your economic stability. And I'm going to go over just a little bit and, and open up the floor to continue the conversation we were just having. And I'm going to encourage you all any questions, any things like that, to please put this on here. So one thing that we know about RVA Dirt is that they are great at communicating what is going on in the city. So we want to also communicate what's going on in this room to people in power and influence, because one thing that we do know is that power and influence are watching on Twitter. For whatever reason, we can, we can spark some interest on Twitter. Um, so it's really important whether you think they've heard it all before or it, you know you say it all the time Please put it on this card because we're going to really start putting this in documentation to pass it on um, So first off in the social and community context uh, Just thinking about community benefits agreements equity packages. We talked about the tax increment the increment financing on the yellow We haven't talked too much about the affordable housing piece um, mostly because we're not totally sure what that's going to look like yet because we don't have the proposal. I think Art, oh, he's less stepped out the room, but Art made a great point that we don't have the proposal, but we know that they want to put shovels in the ground in March. So as soon as they get that proposal, we're going to be expected to come back with our questions, our feedback, and if we're not having this conversation now, then we might not ready, be ready and we're not going to have time because we're already doing the chasing backward, chasing to catch up. But we also want to have a conversation with you guys right now and get your feedback on other projects just in the city when moving forward 
what would it take for us to be comfortable with developers coming in and saying that they are going to invest in our city? We've heard a little bit about just asking the questions about affordable housing, but this is part of the conversation that I'd really like for us to speak about and talk about. Even if you can't put it in like a political language of a policy, what do you guys want to see from Richmond? What would make this a more comfortable place? What's something that we can start asking for to be invested in? So I think like with the, with the recent news that we're, we're like second in the nation for evictions and second in the state for poverty. I know in one of the, the city's uh, requests is that they want to talk about poverty mitigation. What does that actually look like? I love that. So what does the poverty conversation actually look like? And um, Dr. Teresa mentioned TIF districts and his work, but I'm not sure if we pointed out that Ben that was up here answering all of our questions is actually the co-founder of um, Eviction Lab RVA. So the conversations and the research that you're talking about right now with eviction, um, Ben is your guy on that research and doing that as well. So if you want to also have that conversation, that's why we're keeping Ben around. So when we get that proposal, we can also uh, dive right into that. So please act, put that question down about what does addressing poverty, not just jobs, not just that, like what does addressing poverty look like? Right. Mm -hmm. If we could get that to 50% mm -hmm. housing, that's to me was similar to better than So I'm going to go to Jeff and Jesse for the 200. That's within the TIF district, but they're also looking at throughout the city, right, for other um, uh, spots for the affordable housing, and that's going to be under the Better Housing Coalition um, in conjunction with the um, Office of Community Wealth Building. So again, we don't know where that will be. But they have said in the in the project that that they're going to give that to Better Housing Coalition to also look over. So I'm curious. Can I just ask a question of? Um, so when we talk about affordable housing, we talk about percentages of AMI, and so that means percentage of area median income. And in Richmond, the way it works, it, really everywhere, the way it works is that HUD determines these, and it's based on the Metropolitan Statistical Area, so the MSA. That's not just Richmond City. That's including Henrico, Chesterfield, et cetera. So the average is higher than what we might see in the city of Richmond. And then the way they determine affordable housing is it's a percentage of quote unquote AMI. A lot of the affordable housing conversations I've been hearing, and other people might have different experiences, is that it's around 60 to 80% AMI, which is still people that are in, like I wanna say it's like the 40 to $50,000 range. So one question I have for people is like, what? What does affordable housing, what is affordable to everybody? Like, what's the monthly rent? What's, what's this income people are having? Yeah, let's take it to another level. Like, why, when we talk about affordable housing, why is it always in the context of rental? So, definitely, writing on a green card, talking about affordable housing, also translating to ownership, right? So, these are things that we would love to see written down so that we could put it on a report to give to people. But that's a great one. And not just in the housing, but ownership in part of the land, right? Ownership in part of these businesses, because a lot of it's going to be mixed use. So, that is different storefronts and things. So, is there also a percentage that has to be black owned? I'm not sure. Is there a program to make sure that people can meet those requirements if we're putting that in there? And is this just for this project? Or is this something that we're going to say as a community, we want this, minim this minimal to, for any and every development project to come in? Are we asking for a process for economic development? And one more thing on that, just with the existing business, you know, that's right. an issue that pushed out. So if there was a way to um, 
maybe protect the taxes that they're currently paying club as those continue to rise. We saw that so much around um, uh, down in Chaco Bottom as they were doing the what uh, the, the market place down there, right? And the black businesses especially that were barely able to keep up, they started closing during the week because that construction was prohibiting people from coming down. So again, I love that. What does that mean for existing business owners while they're doing construction down there? Absolutely, yes. What if they? What if the design is like hideous and we don't want this huge ugly thing? Like developers develop really hideous shit all over the city. So it's like, how do we like, how do we, what's our uh, oversight as citizens to say like, we, if you're gonna do it, do it, but we wanna like have a say and like make a place that humans wanna be in. Right. And come to, and not a place that's gonna look like all this other stuff that's been built since 2008. I love that. So in the social context, yes. So what does this space even look like? like social in, infrastructure. A social infrastructure, please write that down. I love that. Well, I just want to know, that also it's like safe for the environment, safe mm. for the health of the community. Like how are we going to promote urban farming, how are we going to support you know, urban farmers that are already here, and how are we going to make sure the air quality is safe, are we going to have green, green spaces, are we going to have you know, better areas for people to exercise in where they feel safe, you know, different things like that I really want to take into account. Health. Right, and Richmond right now is a city on health equity. We just got a huge grant with the Richmond Culture of Health, like the city health district. And so they're talking about health equity like no one's business. They're really talking about the social determinants of health. And actually, um, the four categories I, I mentioned to you are social determinants of health. And those are the starting points for conversations like this because we are looking for healthy communities. And here in Richmond, we have an urban farming, especially black urban farmers, that are doing it. They are training people they're out here so why not also just use that resource and are we tapping into them um, in an ownership way and not just contracting them to say hey you're in this project to build um, I've already uh, said this before in some of the NH district meetings to Grant Neely so it's not um, they already know that people are going to be asking about this but when it comes to that piece of it um, I would like to see the city having a conversation about why uh, the city is strapped to Dominion for lower um, lower energy rates um, and can't put solar on any of the city buildings because of that. And because when you look at the renderings, the architectural renderings of this this development, you see a coliseum that is covered in solar panels. You see new new solar panels and some green rooftop gardens. But when you ask them about that, they say that. Oh no, that's 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 maybe you know we're not sure. And I said no. We need to know exactly what that's going to mean for the city because if you look at what what the dynamic is for power and energy, Dominion tells the city you can't put solar on these buildings. If we put solar on buildings in the city and start generating energy for the rest of the community, that is wealth building. I want to hear the conversations that Mayor Sony is having with Tom Farrell, the CEO of Dominion, the biggest polluter in this state, the biggest, one of the biggest polluters and contributors to climate change, when we're talking about a proposal and we're wanting to know what Richmond's going to look like in 20 or 30 years. Why is nothing on that RFP talking about solar and renewable energy for this city? He also, last year, signed on to the mayoral climate change global go to COP21 and Paris and talk about how we're going to do all this 
I don't see it happening. This is the perfect time to raise that into the dialogue. That's a great point, and Whitney, I know they've heard it all, but please write that down, because again, we're gonna be posting this, and so other people that couldn't make it are gonna read it and be like, oh my gosh, I never even thought of that, let me look into it. So please, let's go ahead and put that down. Yeah, I'm gonna go ahead, and I'll get back to you, Dora. I'm thinking, like, about the buildings, are they gonna be sustainable buildings? Mm -hmm. Like, um, like are they gonna be in energy sinks? Like, that's another thing you can consider, is how much you all the building would use, and I guess the environmental impact of the development itself, right. and if it's just creating more pollution and more, more problems. Right. So we're doing a lot of analysis on, we have a whole analysis on the economic part, the how to pay for it part, but part of some questions we've heard from the community too are what will be the environmental impacts, what will be the neighborhood impacts, there are not studies or evaluations necessarily on that, and that's something that the, cap, the commission that was just voted on Monday, I'm not sure if they're gonna look at or ask those questions, right? So these are also ways that we can influence what questions and, and things are actually asked of this project and what will be the outcome. Um, I'd like to know if we take apart sort of this mega deal mm -hmm. and say, hey, the city owns a bunch of land downtown, what could be done if we take apart this as a mega deal and just say, hey, we have this garage that could be wrapped. Like, what can we you know, do with developers on that without spending $600 million on the Coliseum part of it or whatever the number is, $400 million, there's a lot of numbers floating around. But, and can we essentially spend less money on the Coliseum and then have more money to do all these other things we want to do, like affordable housing? So I, I'd like to know if they considered getting, like, going to developers with the land broken up as separate parcels. Well, we remember that the initial was the 10 block, so and now it's gone up to the 80 block because of the risk and things. But that, again, goes back to Brother Art's comment of this isn't the only way to build. This is what the administration asked for, um, very specifically. Whether the community asked for that or not, it was something that was asked for. Um, and they got what they asked for, right? Um, so at this point, I, I love the thinking that you're doing and, and having the crisis mode that we're in in response to this while also thinking long-term is kind of the both and that we're gonna have to do. So in the, later on in the projects, if they're coming up with these big zones again, why and how can we push for smaller zones to be done a little bit at a time? Yeah. Uh, I, I just wanted to kind of point out that uh, if you're thinking about, I mean, this, this point about environmental uh, analysis, the lack of an environmental impact statement is, is a fantastic one. Um, the ship has sailed on a lot of the analysis, right? The mayor's probably not going to pony up another $100,000 for another consultant report. Right. The, uh, the paper that was used to set up the commission uh, by the city council focuses on economic issues. It focuses on real estate. And so the council may be constrained a bit in who they select. Right. That doesn't mean that you couldn't, as an environmental expert, try to apply for that council um, and make a case that you know about real estate through an environmental lens. Mm -hmm. So I would encourage people who might have an interest in being on that commission uh, to apply to the council for that. But there is also a third point of leverage, which is that everyone on the council, a lot of the people on the council who voted for the commission also want a consultant right. of some kind. So they also are looking to hire some of their own consultants to analyze the proposal whenever it appears. That doesn't necessarily have to be an economic analysis. That can be an analysis from a number of different perspectives and a lot of different kinds of consultants. So there's another point of leverage that we as a community could use against 
not against, but use on the city council to say, this is what we want to see in terms of analysis. So when you're spending our tax dollars on an analysis, we might want something broader than just the economic I love that advice, definitely. This is a, this has been something that's been sold to us that's gonna be good for our schools. And um, a lot of, a phrase that I've seen pop up a bunch of times um, around this project is the notion of increasing the tax base. And what I, what I can't help but wonder is why, why can't we, um, instead of only focusing on increasing the tax base, why couldn't we uh, do something like what Portland, Oregon has done and actually just increase the tax rates on the likes of Dominion, on the likes of the wealthiest people in this city, um, people who are doing it well. Like, could we make enough revenue that way to pay for our schools directly instead of having to do all of this um, to pay for our schools? It's a good question. And do we have reports that someone actually looked into that to compare it? I don't know. I don't think so. Right? And that, again, great things to put down so that we can feed this to them, that it is written down. This is what the community said. Yeah. Oh. I just wanted to say that um, one thing I wanted to get out there during this conversation is the idea of city priorities. <laughs> because two years ago, we were talking about increasing tax base by developing the boulevard. Right. There, was a, there was an ordinance, there was an RFP, there were consultants hired, and then it just went quiet. And now we're looking at developing an area downtown that's really much, much harder to develop. The boulevard's just set up to be developed. The land is clear, it's ready to go. And it was being sold to us two years ago as the single best city-owned property in Richmond to develop. So now why, why is all of a sudden North Boulevard, the thing. So North of Broad, no, you're right. That's a very North good North question North that we've heard of. Right. Why not start with the Boulevard first? We're, we're not sure. So this is supposed to create a lot of jobs. Are those jobs going to go to union guys? Like, can we use this as an opportunity to be a democratic city or a blue or a left-leaning city and actually like help labor for a sec? That's a great question. Yeah, so please put that down. That's a great one. Duran? Uh, how, how, how can we use this opportunity to trigger you know, the development of a process for implementation of community benefit agreements right. between, um, you know, the community, developers, and the city. Right. This, and this is a great time to start talking about that because right now in this particular project, the mayor has said, hey, I did all the negotiating for y'all. I got it in there. I got everything y'all wanted. I did the negotiations for us. In a community benefits agreement, traditionally, it is actually a legally binding contract with a community board and the developers. And the city usually says, we're not going to have any kind of contract with the developers until you sign a CBA. And so even the way that we are getting our benefits agreements are not in a, con a traditional community voice-led certain way. Um, so this is a, another great opportunity to say, to again, give a process, because we do not have a process in Richmond for development to come in, and what does that start with? Right. We, and it sounds like we need that, so we don't have to keep having this conversation. Yeah, Whitney. Can you, can you talk a little bit more about what that would, what, like what does community benefits agreement mean? Like what right. is that even, that yeah. phrase, what is that? Yeah, sure, exactly. So it really is about what does the community see would be a benefit um, through this investment, in this investment. 
Um, it is truly something that the community comes up with. Now, traditionally, these are affordable housing units. Traditionally, these are jobs. Traditionally, these are minority business enterprises being um, included in with certain percentages. So traditionally, that's what that is. But if you're looking around the country, because CBAs are all over this country, um, so taking a look at Detroit, that right now their city started one a year ago and they're being sued by community folks right now for having a tight, wanting a tighter one. Oakland um, had one that is looking to be pretty successful. Pittsburgh also right now is reporting to have a successful one. Nashville just started one that people are really excited about. So these are happening all over the country. But it is truly, usually, the whatever development that is going on in that particular land, so if we're talking about north of the broad, right now there, it, there are no residential homes or places in this zone. So what some folks, when I've talked about community benefits agreements across the country, they said, well, since there's no residential people there, you wouldn't be able to have a board to actually negotiate with. And my response is, well, they pushed out all the people 50 years ago, so there's no one there to, to negotiate with. Uh, but this would also be a citywide thing, since this is such a huge project. And then they have the questions of, well, who does your, so your, your political resistance, your social justice pieces, who are those folks? Is there a board? Is it a Urban League? Is it an NAACP? Well, right now, those aren't... I know we've got some folks in the room, but none of those boards are actually leading the conversation and organizing at council and, and putting pressure and leading that voice. So again, we don't have a go-to to say who the developer would be negotiating with. So that's also something that we've heard it may be a, um, a negative for us. But this is still an opportunity to start this conversation now of what we would want in a community benefits agreement. I've seen recreation centers come out. I've seen grocery stores come out of CBAs. So it's not just about jobs and, and housing. Yes. And I just, what's been most disturbing about this for me is the fact that Jackson Ward sits right next to all this and you see a million maps that have no labeling of the communities that this project is surrounding and the statement that no residents are within that area, but the fact of the matter is there is a large impact that our community will have based on this project. And when they came to our association to, to give us this information, a conversation like this should have happened, but what happened was a disgusting sales pitch with no details and someone standing before us who said they essentially had no answers. And for those, what, what could you be negotiating if you're coming to communities and you have no answers to provide to the community members asking the questions and then have the audacity to say that no residents are within this area when there are? There are residents there. They might not have leases. They might not be someone that you can find in a census, but there are very there are many people actually in that area that consider that a community um, as, as well as the surrounding places. So. I appreciate you saying this. This is our first time ever holding a space like this, but we really just saw a gap of having a conversation. And we also noticed that counselors and administration are watching. So whatever we can capture, we want to put out there so that they can really hear you all. But that is an, an amazing point. I do have a question. Um, sure. And this is kind of something that I heard, I want to say about a year ago, where the government was working with DC to get DC companies here and keep them on DC salaries. Mm -hmm. Um, I'm just seeing a lot of investing for newcomers without, obviously we all know, without raising up and investing with the people that have been here. Right. Um, but do you know anything about that? Um, that racial equity, I mean, I call it a racial uh, equity piece, but the equity piece of looking at who's here and investing in here. Um, it, 
it really depends on who is the who that we're talking about is here, right? Because we can say that it's going to be investing in the people that are going to get these jobs. That's been a big selling point for folks that we're going to have create jobs and create training. So for them, it could be very beneficial and feel uplifting. Um, I'm not sure it's going to happen in 20 years with that person's son or their grandson for generational wealth. I'm not sure how that job will, but those are the conversations around equity that we, we should be having and questioning. So that would be something great to ask and uh, to write down of how are we investing in the folks that need it the most. Yeah, I mean, just briefly on the job piece, like. What are the commitments around, are these going to be living wage jobs, that sort of thing? Exactly. We don't know. Yeah. And, and when that comes out, these would be great questions to also just put in there that these are, these are the standard. Um, because I, I want to be really clear that the administration is really proud of the benefits that they put in there, but to be honest, a lot of these things should just come standard. There's nothing to brag about. This is what you should be doing coming into our city and investing. Yeah. I, I just wanted to say um, that you know, I love the idea of community benefits. Obviously, I would, I, I and I wouldn't, and I wouldn't want to. I don't live in Jackson Ward. I don't live in those areas that are closest to this, to this, um, to this like ten block radius. But I, I would, I, if I was going to talk about a community, a community benefits, I would want to start from. I wouldn't even want to start from like the Coliseum, or I would want to start from like what. If, if there was an investment to be had, exactly. what, let's, let's start there. Right. Because what I've seen, and, and I think that it is as, as, um, as communities in Richmond, as we, we as people and residents <coughs> move through this over the next couple months, I think it's a good thing to remember that we are ultimately dealing with corporate players. Right. It might be a nonprofit entity that is presenting this, but the people that are essentially behind it have a lot of experience dealing with communities and trying to negotiate with communities to get what they want. And one very uh, clear example of this is happening right now, I hate to bring it up again, but the ACP and the compressor station in Union Hill, there's been a lot of negotiation. I don't want to dig into the details of that because it's been very, I know it's been very painful for the people in that community, but if folks want to look into that and read more about it, there is a negotiation process that has happened where um, the the community said, you know, raised concerns like this is a huge, this is like a huge um, in piece of infrastructure that's very dangerous and toxic and polluting, but also dangerous because it, it it carries natural gas and there have been explosions and this is a rural community that doesn't even have an ambulance in their community. Well, what Dominion said was, well, we'll give you an ambulance. We'll, we'll pay $300,000 to get you an ambulance. And, and there were all these negotiations that were made in the process leading up to what we're now in, which is the permitting um, of, the, of the compressor station. So um, it's caused a lot of division. But um, I would just caution against like it becoming like a, a negotiation. A negotiation, right. Which yeah, is if like, we're in it from the beginning, it's not a negotiation. It's coming in from a historical view to what we want. So Whitney brings us back around. If I can just add something to that, because I think like, so we had, um, there's, I think it's so possible to be in a situation where instead of having the developers and the city come to the community, to have a community come and say there's things that we need in our community and we see that there might be a development 
that we would want to happen to begin with. And something where if it's a formal community benefits agreement, I think it would also empower people to be able to stand up and engage of, on our own terms, frankly. To say, hey, you know, these are, are what we truly as a community see as blighted properties, or we truly as a community see as a need or something that we're willing, I hate to say trade, but us to say these are our parameters and showing the avenue to be able to start that conversation, it's something that while it didn't really work out and end in the true full development, which to me was actually interesting because some of the benefits still stayed there, um, but it's in Charlottesville um, where things are a little bit different. I'm sure there's things that we can evolve from those kind of things and learn from those lessons, but I thought it was just interesting to hear the story of that where it started with the community seeing the need. And because there was a council person that was willing to start those conversations, they had the avenue to make it work so that's also a piece of like so important to where we're in control of it and it's not them coming and negotiating with us it's something a little bit different the, the development will come in and, and help with a need that we're already asking for um, that we're saying so we've got about 10 minutes left um, i want to really and ask for you guys to any other verbals to be the things that you would like to see invested in I'd also like for you to take the time to fill out your card, at least one. Um, on your pink card, while you have it out and have your attention, please write your name and email if you would like the report out from this, and also we can see who was here in the room. So please write your name and your email on the pink card for me. And as you guys do that, that's something, the question that we really want to continue to ponder on and talk about because what does this community want invested in? What do we want to invest in? Our energy, our advocacy, what is that? What does that look like from us? Because when they start asking, if for whatever room, if there is room at all, whether it's in this project or next, as a community, we can start saying what we want to see the improvements in and putting that in a very clear collective voice of Richmond. Um, we're the capital of the state. Capital of the state, yep. Commonwealth. Why is Richmond paying all of it? Like, where, is there state money for this? Is there federal money for this? Why is it just a Richmond? So, federal, so uh, what, we, what, what has been said, it's a book called uh, How to Kill a City by uh, Pete Mosowitz. And he talks about, you know, gentrification and uh, I think five cities uh, talks about uh, uh, New Orleans, uh, San Francisco, um, and Detroit, and like two others. And then in the beginning, he talks about the, the, the shift that has occurred over the last, I don't know, 20, 30, 40 years, where federal is not sinking money into cities anymore. So cities are now like trying to operate like businesses in the sense of, you know, private development is their well, what they interpret as one of their only recourses for, uh, for, for, for economic development. And to add on to that, Dr. Teresa, I love that you brought that book, also gave a, a really nice narrative around that same piece of that the federal, federal agencies, federal government used to actually give grants for this type of development, for this type of land clearing to bring in revenue. And when they stopped giving those grants, the city had to find a way to continue this land clearing. 
right? And if we're looking and thinking about the 60s and 70s of land clearing and who that affected, then we can understand a little bit of these motives as well, that the cities are now taking on themselves to, to do this. And this is just the only thing we know of how to do this at this point. So we're not seeing other things. But these are also good questions to put in there and why, why not? Do I get to blame Reagan? Sorry, you want to blame Reagan? I mean, just throw Reagan. You know. Uh, okay. Well, let go ahead. I let everyone know early. I was from Petersburg, and we recently defeated a water company that was trying to purchase our water and sewer infrastructure. The reason I bring that up is because and I used to work for a developer, my dad was a developer, is that when you have organizations that stall or don't tell you what they're doing, there's something significant behind it. There's something real significant behind it. And the water company even went that so far to offer us $5 million to pay off debt in addition to additional monies. But it's... Uh, there are a lot of concerns that I have, like right outside of the development area that they that they outlined when it comes to Jackson Ward, the Governor's School, possibly Virginia Union. I don't know. Well, I want to see the plan because I don't know which of those properties may be ancillary or additional add-ons that may find themselves in that if something happens to this deal and there's possibly a uh, default on the tip. And so those are things I think need to be looked at real. In Richmond, as a city, we've been burned before. So there's a lot of trust, um, whether they're keeping this from us for their reasons, but right now it is a, a piece of trust that raises a lot of suspicion. So that's why we're all here having these conversations. Um, I want to also encourage you all, I know we stood up and introduced yourself to your neighbor, but just to take a couple minutes and find anyone else in the room just to see and, and introduce yourself, right? Like we're not gonna be able to have collective conversations about what we want or what we want if we don't know each other. So please do that, please fill out your card. I'm gonna ask if you just return your card back at the table, you just lay them right there, we'll collect them. Um, I want to give a big thank you to Richmond Public Library for allowing us to have this space. I want to give a big thank you to RVA Dirk. Can you give a round of applause to RVA Dirk, please? Not just for tonight, but everything that these ladies do is pretty amazing for our city. And the fact that they have influence enough to where we know politicians, administrations, and Navy Hill will be watching and listening this. Um, we really appreciate their platform opening it up for this. So thank you guys so much for this. If you have more questions, uh, you will receive an email from us um, with the recordings and, and the data from this. And keep watching, because this is going to continue on. Jesse, did you want to say anything else to close up? Okay. I want to say thank you to everybody here. Thank you all for coming out and having a really engaging discussion. And I really also want to thank our facilitator, Chelsea. And then um, 
this is basically the end of the meeting. I just want to give you guys a heads up. The library closes at 8, so a lot of the networking conversations might be happening while sauntering towards the stairs. <laughs> Thank you all, and have a really great night. I appreciate it. Thank you, guys.